are listening to True Crime Fiction, feeding your addiction to the best of the written and the spoken word in crime. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so for as little as £1 at patreon.com slash truecrimefiction. In the world of crime, it is true that cases that get the most attention are most likely to get solved. They will have more person power. The public will be more likely to have their memories jogged and contact investigators when they have information that could prove relevant. Attention is important, but also there are some crimes which get more than just attention from the local populace in the area they are committed. They get attention around the world, with people who may never have heard of the place or the people involved by any stretch of the imagination, suddenly knowing intimate details about their deaths. People who have no skin in the game can reveal no missing piece of information. So it was with the University of Idaho or the King Road killings. On November the 13th, 2022, the bodies of four students, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, Kaylee Gonclaves and Ethan Chapin, who attended Idaho University, were found in an off-campus sorority house. Two others who also lived at the house while studying survived. News of these killings went round the world. They shocked everyone, in part because of the youth of those killed. All the victims were either 20 or 21. They were young people on the cusp of adulthood, taking steps out into the world. Millions of parents wave their children off to university or college every year, hoping that they've done a good enough job in preparing them for the world and aware that everybody has their fair share of bumps along the road to true independence. Many parents may have fears for their kids' futures, which will probably be heightened at that moment of waving them off, but over time will gradually fade. What happened in Idaho was every parent's nightmare. All parents who read the story will have had a moment, even subconsciously, where they feel themselves in the shoes of the victim's parents. Many young people, those who are looking forward to leaving for university soon and those who are there just now, or just left, will see themselves momentarily in the place of the victims. At least, in part, this story got attention because so many of us can see ourselves or our children there in a place where we think they should be safe to start exploring life in the world and having that life taken from them. I don't think this is the only thing that meant there were headlines around the world about this happening. The other part of it is to do with the way that we build stories. It is typical in writing for either fiction or non-fiction to lean on the works of other writers in your genre, especially your predecessors. 
It's easy to see that in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter stories. They reference the rest of British children's literature, the less-read Narnia stories, Mary Poppins, The Sword in the Stone, The Iliad, which is not a children's story but a foundational myth, and all the many, many folk tales which pop up out of every corner of the British Isles. Most of the time, when writers employ this technique, it's done in a surreptitious way, so that those who don't know won't notice, but for those who do, it's a clever little knowing wink, a shared moment between writer and reader. The King Road's killings are, of course, not fiction. The crimes involved are all too terribly real. However, as humans, we are primed to try and find patterns in things. It helps us give meaning to the world and what's happening around us. Part of creating compelling non-fiction, which will pull an audience in and make them care, is to use literary techniques more often associated with fiction. So although possibly not consciously done, the King Road's killings nod to two events in previous American true crime history. Host Kena Whitworth starts the current seven-episode podcast with the most particularly American activity of attending a college football game. It works to set up the ordinariness, the everyday wholesome America which the story is set in. Indeed, for the student residents of King Road, the most dramatic crime they'd ever been involved in were a few noise complaints from neighbours. It is the very ordinariness of the setting which gives us riffs of In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. In Cold Blood is pinpointed as the first ever true crime novel. It is not the first time that true crime was published, as obviously newspapers have been around for several hundred years. We can go back further and see in the Bible and the Talmud, it is full of crime. Crime has been around for as long as there have been human beings. Truman Capote spent four years in Kansas researching and interviewing people about the murder of the Clutter family. All four of them were murdered in one night in their family home. What Capote did was to minutely examine the Clutter's emotional lives and their place in the local community. The outcome is a compelling read, one where you feel as though you know the Clutters and the town as if you have been there yourself. He then flips the table and we delve into the world of the men who committed the murders as part of a robbery, Perry Smith and Richard Hickok. While there were serious questions about the veracity of some of Capote's writing, the book has stood the test of time and 70 years later is a classic of true crime. It's precisely Capote's intimate depiction of small-town America which infiltrates any small-town narrative that now comes from America, but especially the small-town narratives in true crime. My second suggested reading for the viral reaction to this crime is that it has the echoes of previous crimes which have also become part of American true crime history. That's Ted Bundy. 
While Bundy did operate in Idaho and is linked to one murder there, it is the setting, a sorority house, rather than the state that is redolent of Bundy's killings. On the 15th of January 1978, Bundy entered the Chai Omega sorority house in Florida State University, where he sexually assaulted, raped and killed two residents, severely beating three others who were left with permanent damage from the attacks. All the women were between 20 and 21. In the immediate aftermath, there were similar questions to the ones that have been asked in the Kings Road killings. How was it done? Who was the intended target? Why did the others not wake up? Who is that brazen? And, of course, the continual and main question in the crime genre, why? Of course, the similarity of the King Road killings to the Chai Omega killings also sparked another question. Is the perpetrator of the King Road killings another Ted Bundy? Bundy being very prolific, this question comes with a not inconsiderable amount of worry and concern. If one tries to find other parallels with Bundy and the man who is about to be tried for the Idaho killings, Brian Koberg, they are tenuous and verging on flimsy. Bundy posed as a police officer and Coburg had wanted to go into the police. While this may seem strange, there are many serial killers who are attracted to law enforcement as a profession. Notable are Ed Kemper and Dennis Rader. Not because they want to protect people, but because the uniform gives them a certain power, respect, authority and control which immediately comes with the position. Serial killers are people who often don't want to or are not able to put in the hard work or have the patience it actually takes to gain others' respects. Others' respect. Therefore, donning a uniform and carrying a badge is seen as an easy way of exerting the control they want to. Coburg was studying criminology and Bundy studied law. Coburg researched the emotional state of criminals just before they committed a crime and Bundy wrote a dissertation on the psychology of juries, which is relevant as he represented himself in trial to the point where the judge appeared to grudgingly admire his legal ability. Were both men trying to understand themselves or trying to understand how to wiggle their way through a system? Or is a third possibility a strange mix of both of them? These suggestions are so flimsy because there's still much we do not know about Coburg. Reports from those who knew him in his younger years talk of a personality change that happened when he lost weight and started a drug addiction. As an adult, his studies and work appear to be marred by interpersonal conflict. People rarely start their criminal career at killing four strangers, so had he killed before? More obscure is his motivation. So far, no one has found a link between Coburg and his victims. It's noticeable that Bundy also had no link to his victims, other than, rather pathetically, they looked a bit like his ex-girlfriend who broke his heart. Bundy, however, was not the first person to kill women's students in their homes. For those who have watched Mindhunter, they may remember Richard Speck, who killed 
eight student nurses in their shared home in Chicago. This was 12 years before the Chi Omega killings, but try to draw a line from Speck to Bundy to Coburg is completely futile, as similarities are pure coincidence. Although it is interesting to notice the escalating academic ability from Speck, who struggled in school, to Coburg, who was a PhD candidate. Without more knowledge of what exactly happened in Idaho, it is impossible to say if any link with other killers has any deeper meaning, or if it is purely the human mind trying to make sense of what appears senseless by finding patterns or something familiar. The trial of Coburg, which was due to start on the 2nd of October, but is currently delayed, may answer some of these questions. Equally, it may not. Sometimes withholding information is a last act of control these people can exercise, and their craving for control is terrible, superseding any sense of empathy for the victims' families. I, like so many others who recognise in this crime the deeper echoes of previous ones, will be listening to King Road Killings as it covers the trial of Coburg to see if any of our questions will be answered. You have been listening to True Crime Fiction, the podcast that is feeding your addiction to all things crime. You can find our website at true-crime-fiction.com, on Twitter at true underscore crime underscore fic, on Facebook and Instagram as True Crime Fiction. Please rate and review on the podcast app of your choice. Music is by Kitty Kitty Meow Meow.